This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. We have a very, very special guest today. We have retired Supreme Court Justice Michael Mullen, who's presided in the criminal part in Riverhead for 20 years. And we're going to ask him all about being on the bench and uh, uh, his experiences. He brought a wealth of uh, uh, talking things to talk about. But uh, well, first of all, welcome to the show, and thank you for the, the, for the honor of your presence. Richard, thank you, because it's certainly different from... My normal uh, morning routine, but I look forward to it, and I'm sure we'll both enjoy it. Well, we met we met in an unusual fashion. Mm-hmm. We were at a class, so, so people want to always ask me, "How do you find guests?" Yes. Right? How do you find guests? Because you know, it's not like we have booking agents or things like that in the formal sense. But um, uh, Judge Mullen was uh, the referee at a, a, a real estate closing, and I was asked to fill in for somebody. And one of the parties wasn't us; <laughs> was extremely late. Again, wasn't any of the buyers or sellers. You know, it wasn't the title company. <laughs> so, but but somebody was really, 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 really late. So we got a chance to get to know each other. And at the sort of the conclusion of the conversation, I was: this is going to be a great radio. This would make a great radio show because everybody wants to know. Uh, all about the criminal system and how do you decide cases? How do you assess credibility? We had this vibrant, dynamic discussion, and I thought that maybe uh, we could get the judge here, and he, he was kind enough to come uh, to our studio. So really, thank you so much, and thank you for all that great service, uh, public service uh, to the people of Suffolk County, the state of New York, and all that you've you've done thus far. Well, Richard, uh, well, thank you for your kind remarks. Um, as far as service... I um, the, actually 20 years on the bench went flew for me so quickly um, because I wasn't going to work in the morning. I was doing something that I absolutely love, and I was convinced that this was what I was meant to do with my life. So when you are faced but are in that type of a situation, I just couldn't wait to get to Riverhead every morning. Uh, we live in Huntington, so it was a 45-minute to an hour ride every day, and uh, the time flew. I couldn't wait to get there, and what I did, I loved what I was doing. So uh, people say, well, how can you love sentencing someone uh, for murder? But um, you go through, you, obviously, you bring a different perspective when you're there in that black robe, and you have the responsibility of trying to be fair to everybody that's involved and do the right thing. And uh, so it, my those years on the bench just flew by. I remember growing up as a young boy in the Bronx, my father was a fireman, New York City fireman, and his, a lot of his friends were cops, and they would talk about the fact that 20 years they could retire. And I said, boy, that, that seems like an awful long time, 20 years. It's all of grammar school, it's all of high school, it's all of college, and if you go to law school, it's more than that. My 20 years on the bench flew by so quickly. I was just amazed when I looked back on it. So basically you blinked and now you're on the radio. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, when I left the bench, I had to retire at mandatory age 70. Uh, I went with a firm, and I have to mention their name, uh, Lamb and Bernarski in, uh, in Melville, an excellent group of lawyers. And, of course, that was where I met you. Uh, we were, I was a referee and a foreclosure man, which... Uh, a judge from Suffolk County had assigned me to. And uh, Lemon Bernowski generously let me stay there. Uh, I'm a counsel of counsel to the firm. And it's a wonderful group of lawyers, and I'm pleased to be with them. Uh, so what do, you, what do you do now at that firm? I, I try to hide. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been retired now 10 years. So uh, I'm kind of growing to the end of that uh, my time there, I'm not on any schedule. They, they never raise uh, any question about, you know, judge, uh, uh, are you thinking of retiring or anything like that? So I'm just going day to day. And one of the reasons why I love going there in the morning is I'm being a lawyer and um, growing up in, in the project in the Bronx never taught me how to change anything, uh, <laughs> a flat, uh, or even replace a window. So. I'm not very handy around the house. That's what I'm getting to. Well, mo- most of us aren't. <laughs> All right, so let's, you know, let me tell you a little story that 
may surprise people. When, when I was uh, a, a volunteer lawyer for an ambulance uh, group out in Queens, they were nice enough to give me a, a radio so to, to check out what was going on and be able to communicate with them and things like that. And I listened to, I guess, the police channels. You know, mm-hmm. there was the, uh, the was it the special operations, Doug? I think it was SOP, special operations. And I was amazed. I was amazed at how much crime was being committed. It would be stories of jackhammers on bank roofs and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, suspects fleeing on motorcycles and EDPs, you know, emotionally disturbed persons. And, and I, was, I was aghast at how much <laughs> criminal activity was going on, even though in day-to-day life, mm-hmm. you know, may not see it as much. But, you know, in reflection, you, there's a lot of crime out there. It's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. You know, it's everything from hit and runs and shoplifting and, um, you know, minor assaults and this and that. From your perspective as part of the judiciary, did you feel that there was a lot of crime out there? Uh, I never really thought in terms of uh, volume um, because th- th- I sat in what they call the major crime part in uh, in Suffolk County um, in Riverhead, right? And these are this is the most serious crime, the felonies, right? Generally. This is this is the top of the the yeah. bad stuff. Um, okay. Of course, we had a good share of uh, driving while intoxicated, but uh, it wasn't usually a defendant who was involved for the first time with a driving offense. It was someone who was up probably to their third. Ooh. And that's why it was a felony, see. And cases uh, were generally presented to the grand jury um, for indictment before they came to me. So uh, I didn't, wasn't in the streets, as it were. Uh, the cases, when they came to me, were generally uh, serious uh, cases, obviously. I saw some people more than once <laughs> over my 20 years. And... Uh, but I never got involved or never looked. I had to read the grand jury minutes of every case that was presented to me because uh, one of the first things a defense lawyer will do, especially in a felony case, is uh, see if the instructions to, that the d- assistant district attorney gave to the grand jurors was sufficient, whether there was really sufficient evidence to return an indictment. And so I would always do that, too. The first thing I would do when the case was assigned to me I generally even didn't even wait for the request from the defense lawyer. I would read the minutes myself to get my feel for the particular case and, cause the particular defendant who would be appearing before me. Did, did you gather any insight while presiding over all these very serious matters as to what is criminality, what causes criminality, the psychology of criminality? Uh, not really. Uh, some of it is uh, due to... Um, for instance, too much alcohol when you're driving. Uh, one of the um, most serious murder cases that I ever tried, in fact, it was involving the death penalty uh, when we had that briefly in, in New York State, involved a young man who was high on drugs when he committed a rape and then murdered the victim. And that's why it was a, uh, a death penalty case. So uh, criminality wasn't something I was too concerned about. There was one uh, famous case that I had uh, where a doctor was accused of murdering his wife. And the defense that he came was temporary insanity that he, that he used. And of course, that went to the jury, that particular defense. And uh, as they say, the jury didn't buy it. Now, he was convicted of murder. And uh, well, we can talk about that case later on. One of the... Uh, um, Interesting things about that particular case involving the doctor, it was on court TV. Oh, okay. It was during that period of time when in New York we had uh, cameras in the courtroom. The lawyers had to ask my permission uh, for, for uh, allowing the cameras, but I gave it in this case because uh, I just felt the lawyers, the two lawyers were excellent, excellent lawyers, and they weren't going to showboat for the TV cameras. They were focused on their respective jobs, the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And uh, because I got a lot of uh, 
comments and remarks from friends who were able to, including my wife, <laughs> who watched it on TV because the victim in this case, the, the wife of the doctor, was a nurse. And my wife is uh, a nurse, was, and still gives nursing advice at age 70 plus. But um, it, it was an interesting case. And uh, it actually made some of the papers overseas. I'll talk about that if we get a talk, chance later. No, talk on. about it now. So, so okay. So he, the doctor, pled temporary insanity. Right. He put on like some kind of psychological experts. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, what was the basis of his insanity claim? Uh, um, stress or? Yes, that's right. Um, he was a very successful doctor, a pulmonologist, I believe, uh, in the South Shore in Suffolk County, and. Uh, he was under great pressure, he felt, um, because of his success and because of the demands on his time and talent. And uh, he blacked out, you know. He, but the thing that kind of put the lie to that was he was attending a conference uh, in Washington, D.C., a medical conference. And uh, that was his alibi that he couldn't have done it because uh, he, he was, wasn't there. He wasn't there. And... Uh, the detectives in Suffolk County, God bless them, uh, checked the toll booth at the uh, parking lot in LaGuardia Airport and learned that he had gone into the um, parking lot one day, left the next day, and went to uh, Long Island and murdered his wife, then went back to Washington. So his alibi kind of uh, fell <laughs> apart right at the start. And uh, he went to trial, and um, it was uh, an amazing trial for many reasons. The quality of the, of the attorneys involved uh, um, was excellent, professional, and uh, it, it uh, made a very one, uh, interesting experience. When, when the trial was over... And a guilty verdict was established. Did did he ultimately change his story for sentencing? Um, no, he no he didn't. Um, he, it went back to well, he, he was under great pressure, and he just didn't know what he was doing. And one of the interesting things about sentencing is that the, the couple, the doctor and his wife, had uh, two daughters. And they spoke at sentencing on his behalf and asking me to please be a lenient, uh, which I thought was a little ironic. Um, uh, he was the reason, and clearly the evidence showed that, that they didn't have a mother anymore, you know. And, uh, but uh, it was one of those interesting things, uh, cases, because he was a very successful man uh, on the surface. Uh, and uh, he ha obviously had troubles, and and unfortunately, uh, I had to give him the maximum sentence of twenty-five to life. I know we don't follow what happens to the people I sentence, but I did see about three years ago he died while while in prison. Hmm. Did you ever talk to the children outside the context of the actual? You know the cross examination of their victim impact or pleading or anything. No, I like never that. did. No, only I read their statements and and heard their uh, what they had to say when they appeared before me for leniency. Did you actually ask them? Were you, were you able to ask them? You know, the, this this is the person who killed your mother. You, are you sure about this? Are you under any undue influence? <laughs> no, I I didn't. I might have mentioned. You know, she was your mom, uh, but I didn't go into it uh, as to. Isn't that enough of a reason for me to do what I have to do, you know? And one of the interesting things about that case was that uh, um, the defense lawyer, and well, the, the bar in general knew that I was like to read. Uh, being an Irish background, I, I had several favorite poets and writers like James Joyce and, and William Butler Yeats. And during my sentencing, I mentioned the fact that when the doctor, uh, I can mention his name, Robert Razor. Okay. Well, he's name. gone now, so yeah. That's yeah. right. Um, it's all public record. Right. Yeah. It, it certainly is and was, especially on television. <laughs> <laughs> um, when he was arrested, he asked for a copy of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. 
And they happened to have a copy in the patrol car? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is when he was at the jail. And uh, I mentioned that. Um, and um, I thought it was ironic, obviously, because it was uh, Ulysses is a love song. And look at the deed that you were involved with here. Um, I don't know if he was prompted by his lawyers who knew I was a Yates fan, but he quoted a, one of the Yates poems uh, to me at sentencing. And... Uh, because it didn't have any uh, impact uh, on me, but I thought it was... Well, psychologically it did, because you, you remember it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was picked up by the Irish press, and and the the idea uh, that some, uh, possible relatives in Ireland had seen a reference to their nephew or cousin, <laughs> Judge Michael Mullen, in, uh, in um, New York, actually being quoted. Uh, let me just take a, a snippet from, because it's typical of the Irish sense of humor and everything else. Uh, uh, it says, Dr. Razor's lawyer heard that Judge Mullen was a fan of Yeats and Irish literature in general. He had the client read aloud from Consolation and to a friend whose work has come to nothing before sentencing. Judge Mullen was having none of it. <laughs> he noted that Reza had requested Ulysses in his cell after being arrested. Reza had been uh, sentenced by Judge Mullen then to 25 years to life, time enough for him to even finish Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> <laughs> and the, that's the Irish press. Where's that published? In Dublin? Dublin. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. Um, it, there must be a difficulty in trying to communicate with the media while you're on the bench because you don't really want to talk about cases, but you don't necessarily want the media to be misguided either about how the the judicial system works. How do you how did you balance all of that? I just didn't talk to the I, press. That, that makes the most. Uh, sense. Did you get a lot of press inquiries? Not too much. Uh, maybe although, they knew. They, they, maybe they knew to respect the you know the privacy of the yeah. Newsday, which was, you know, it still is the leading paper on, in Long Island, and they had a, a reporter there every day, Andrew Smith, his name was, and he was very accurate. On a couple of the big cases, they would uh, send uh, senior editors or special reporters because the cases had uh, great impact on, on a lot of different things, including politics, for instance. And, uh, but the... Um, that's why judges have a law clerks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. This is Richard Solomon with the Honorable Michael Mullen. This is an amazing interview. We'll be right back right after this. Just keep it locked in. Hi, this is Anastasia Zeltos from Athens, Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it. Welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon with the Honorable Michael Mullen. And we are talking about the bench, media, and all kinds of the, the views from the bench. Uh, and, and just a, a, an incredible journey uh, in, in, in sort of in, in the judiciary involving major criminal uh, allegations. So let's talk a little bit about uh, becoming a judge. I know you said you loved it and you... you couldn't wait to get to court and do the 20 years, but how did, how did you go from, say, law school to, to the bench? Or how does that work? Because that also probably involves a lot of media as well. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd like to start before uh, law school. I grew up in the Bronx and uh, um, high school there, and, and I played a sport that uh, everyone in the Bronx played. Stickball? No, basketball. Okay. It was, it was always a playground, and, uh, and certainly in my neighborhood, there were several. And playing basketball, I, and I played in high school. I was fortunate enough to get a basketball scholarship to college. And I went to Fairfield University uh, in, in Connecticut, Fairfield, Connecticut. And um, just a quick story about that. When I went down to the playground to tell uh, the kids that I played with uh, that I was going to Fairfield, See, because in the 1950s in the Bronx, if you went to college, you went to Fordham, you went to Manhattan, you went to Iona, uh, because they were all, you could take a car there, or even a bus. Uh, but when I told them I was going to Fairfield, they say, well, where is that? 
I said, it's in Connecticut. Well, how are you going to get back and forth? I said, I'm going to live there. Do your parents know that? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I played basketball at Fairfield. Uh, it's, it's run by the Jesuit fathers. It's, it's still going strong. And uh, I went to a Jesuit uh, law school. So, is that yeah, right? Yes. Uh, Fordham? Georgetown. Ah, yes. yes. Yeah. But anyway, um, when I finished my senior year playing, uh, the, the dean of residence students, Father McCormick, uh, came up to me and said, Mullen, this is, that's great, great career, but what are you going to do now? And I don't know, but apparently no one ever asked me that. <laughs> when I, was, I said, well, I might want to go in the FBI because a lot of Irish Catholics, that's what they did, you know. So he says, well, as I understand that you either have to be a lawyer or an accountant. And the LSAT is this Saturday uh, at, down at Fordham in the Bronx, Fordham University. You better get your backside down there and take it, the LSAT. So I did. Two weeks later, I got a, a letter from St. John's Law School telling me that, uh, from Dean McNeese, Harold McNeese, telling me that based upon my LSAT score, they were awarding me a scholarship. Uh, a Thomas More scholarship to St. John's. So obviously, my parents were delighted, and I was delighted. I'm not knowing exactly what was involved. But anyway, uh, the dean called me, and he said, Mr. Mullen, by the way, I'm working, this is in, say, August, before I had started school in September. He said, uh, I'm working on a book. I want you to come down and help me a little, I'm looking up citations and stuff. I was in the Bronx, and St. John's was down in Brooklyn, down, downtown Brooklyn, Skirmerhorn Street. So I got on the subway and went all the way down to Brooklyn. And he said, by the way, one of our graduates, successful graduates, is uh, helping me with the book as well. He's helping with the text. Uh, I'll pick you up at lunchtime. We'll pick you up at lunchtime and go to lunch in downtown Brooklyn. So I said, fine. So the dean comes into the library at lunchtime. He says, okay, Michael, let's go. We're going to lunch. And by the way, uh, this is Mario Cuomo. Wow. <laughs> I said, oh, oh hello. <laughs> and so that was uh, the fall of 1959. In other words, the middle of the last century. In the fall of 1986, Mario Cuomo is the governor of New York State, and he appoints Michael F. Mullen to, to be a judge in New York State. Ah, oh, that so it really is who you know, and and, and it's just exposure, you know. You, you, people, yes, I, you know, I, people I, people don't know who you are unless you get out. Look, we wouldn't know each other unless we bumped into each other. Yeah. So, um, you know. of course, during the years I was a lawyer uh, in Huntington. Uh, first, I was in I went to a firm in Wall Street. Then the family, my family, we moved out to Huntington, and commuting into Wall Street was not very pleasing. Still isn't, uh, <laughs> and uh, so. Um, uh, the senator from uh, Huntington, uh, Bernard Smith, asked me if I would like to be his counsel up in Albany. So this was in the 80s, and I went up with him, and he was very well thought of. Uh, Bernard C. Smith uh, was the former district attorney of Suffolk. And, uh, but he decided to retire. And you know, uh, I guess I, I figured, well, I'll, I'll retire as well. I've been with him four years, and I got to know a lot of people up there. The majority leader of the Senate at that time was Warren Anderson from uh, Binghamton. So um, when Bernie Smith retired, uh, Anderson's counsel came to me. His name was Jack Haggerty and asked if I would like to go with them. <laughs> so Hence Bert, the retirement was cut short. <laughs> Your retirement. <laughs> uh, I was going to be a, a country lawyer back home in Huntington. But uh, when Bernie Smith heard that, he says, Michael, you go to that. That's going to be great. And it was great. Uh, so I was assistant counsel uh, for the majority leader, and I was assigned to doing uh, uh, education and higher education and also environmental conservation because Bernie Smith had been the chairman of that committee. So how do you get to be a lawyer? How do you get to be a judge? And you look back on those things. Maybe I was just meant to do that. I, I was cut out to, to do that. That's why I loved it. How did those experiences shape your decision making if any because you know when you you know you, you're I, I i as a lawyer i always watch cases as well as participate in yeah. them and there are times when i've been in you know waiting for my turn and i'll watch an argument say of, of two accomplished attorneys or sides or whatever 
And sometimes I find I I I, I wouldn't know how to rule. You know, I, I'll look at it and I'll go, wow, that's pretty interesting. And that's really interesting too. And you don't know how to, which way to go. And somebody has, the, the one thing about law is that it's essentially binary. There's a winner and a loser, you know, <laughs> um, you know absent a settlement. Uh, how do you put in your analysis of credibility mm-hmm. and weight to arguments and outcome? Well, in, in the criminal side, it's a little different because the ones who decide credibility, whether someone's lying or not, is the jury, are the jurors. So, but uh, I, of course, have my own views of, of credibility, and uh, uh, people have asked me that over the years. How did you know, for instance, if I was doing a hearing before trial, and someone was saying, Judge, how did you know that guy was lying? I said, well, I grew up in the Bronx. I, <laughs> I can tell a, a phony as soon as I, uh, I hear enough of what they're telling me. Things don't hit, you know, th- just don't match up with with common experience and and uh, being able to know people and judge people by their actions, by, by their consistency in what they're saying, etc. So in the jury trial, the jury is a place with that, a responsibility of deciding uh credibility of witnesses, who they believe, whose story they believe, then, of course, um, picking a jury is a very important thing. Um, For instance, the people in Suffolk County were terrific over the years. All of them, when they would go out to Suffolk County, to Riverhead, to, uh, to be possibly considered to be, none of them wanted to be there. When they came in into my courtroom, maybe 70 at a time, before voir dire, the selection of the jury, I would say that. None of you want to be here. I know that. You can't fool me. But if you're selected and sit in a case like this, I guarantee you're going to say, it was really a great experience, Judge. And they always made a point after the, the verdict and I was going uh, was um, reached by the jury and, and I... Uh, I was dismissing them. I would always go in and thank them for their service. And one of the first things they would invariably say to me, Judge, you were right. What an experience this has been. People don't realize the responsibilities that we have. Because they, they all have their jobs. They all have their families. They don't want to be there and traveling out to Rivet. Who knows how long it's going to take. But when, once they were selected, they... Uh, they did their job, and, and I've had so many great experiences with uh, with jurors when they come. In fact, some contact me years later. I mean, remember that case, Judge, and you would, it was just terrific. You were right. We didn't want to be there, but it was a worthwhile experience. What kind of notes did you get? You know, during the trial, you would get a note during deliberations. Uh. Could you read back this? Could we see this? Was, was there any patterns that you saw, anything that surprised you or anything that tugged at you? Well, the greatest ex- example of something tugging <laughs> was the um, uh, capital case that I uh, presided over. Because it was capital cases, in other words, the death penalty, we had in New York, I believe uh, when Governor Pataki was elected, that was part of his platform. The... Um, in the normal case, felony case, the jury decides guilt or not, but the uh, and the judge imposes the sentence. In the capital case, under the statute in New York, the jury not only decided whether he was guilty or not, they also had to decide whether to impose the death penalty or life without parole. So in the case that I had, they found the defendant guilty of murder first degree. He was convicted of uh, r- raping and murdering a young school teacher uh, on the night before her two-week-old baby's baptism. Wow. So you talk about, oh, God. But anyway, um, the, the prosecutor decided this was the case that, that warranted, d- warranted yeah. deserved at least a look by a jury of the, of the death penalty. It took us six weeks to pick the jury because— it, especially when you explain to the jury that not only do you have to find him guilty or not, you have to decide what the penalty is going to be. So in this case, they found him guilty. I sent them home for a couple of days. Then I gave them the second part of the trial, uh, the mitigating and aggravating circumstances on, on whether to impose death or life without parole. 
Now, so, what was the plea innocent or? Oh, he was guilty. No, no. He, when he when he was arraigned, everything he said, I didn't do it. That's right. All right. So he was found guilty. Uh, it took us six weeks to pick the jury. The trial on the guilt phase took about three weeks. I sent them home for a couple of days, and then they came back for the penalty phase. So uh, getting back, um, they they find him guilty, and I then I give them the law when they come back, because you have to decide, jurors, whether death or life without parole. So they're deliberating. I don't know how long they were deliberating. I, I instructed them on the law, and I get a note from the jurors, from the forelady, and it says, uh, Judge Mullen, we, we want to have the Bible in the jury room with us. So I said to the lawyers, well, this is an easy one. I paid close attention. Neither side put the Bible into evidence. <laughs> so um, I, had the, <laughs> I had the jury in, in the courtroom, and I said, look, I have, you know, Madam Full Lady, and I cannot send the Bible in because it's not in evidence. So they go back into the jury room. About two minutes later, there's another note. Same handwriting? Uh, same, same juror. Uh, the four lady usually, um, or the four person is the scribe. Uh, yeah. uh, writes the note to the to the judge, and uh, with this note, I look at it, and it says, "Judge Mullen, if we don't have the Bible, we're going to stop deliberating." So, I called the two defense lawyers up because if I put the the Bible in over their objection, that would be reversible error. Um. I showed it to them. I said, why don't you two guys, in fact, one of them, uh, of the defense lawyers, uh, eventually came a judge, a Judge Martin Effman out in Suffolk County, but the, and Charlie Von Schmidt was uh, the second counsel. They um, go out in the hall, and then they come back in to the courtroom and say, Judge, send, send the Bible in. The court officers found the Bible in 30 seconds. I don't know how they got it so quick, but they send it in. I don't know how long it took, but they come in. I open up the verdict sheet, and it says, Death. Just one word. Just that's it. Yeah. Wow! And because uh, so, the courtroom is, there's tears, there's cries, everything's going on. So I go in to thank them, and I said, "Look, I have to ask you though. Your service is incredible. What you were asked to do is is beyond the beyond. But was there any particular section of the Bible that you wanted to look at?" The four lady looks at me and she says, "Judge Mullen, we didn't even open it. We just wanted it in the room with us." Makes sense. P- people yeah. say, "Wow, yeah, it's a wow. great, it's a great, it's a great story." Mm. But ultimately, there's there's more to the story because this case went up. The, then it went straight to the court of appeals. Uh, that's what the statute provided, and by a vote of four three, the court of appeals said, "Well, there was no errors or mistakes during the trial, but we find four to three that the statute is unconstitutional." So they sent it back uh, t- for me to impose the sentence, and I imposed life without parole. And, and that's how it ended. Yes. What is it like when you're sentencing and you're looking at the defendants? Do you see stone faces? Do you see squirms? Do you see, you know, you must see every kind of emotion. Do you look in their eyes? Do you ask for comments? What is that moment like? Especially because for for so many of the defendants, this is a pivotal moment. This is like, you know, once you go through that door, that may be it, yeah. you know? Well, um, you see all kinds of things, tears very often. Um, the victim's family is there generally, and uh, I allow f- victim's family to speak at sentencing before I impose the sentence, obviously. Uh, very often, uh, a sentence is agreed upon before. In other words, I'll take a plea. Most of the cases that I sentenced uh, were pursuant to a plea. Uh, so they know what the range is, and uh, so there weren't too many times that people, the a defendant actually broke down in tears and insisted that he was innocent, and all that stuff. So it was usually uh, just uh, cut and dried. Uh, sometimes, of course, a defense lawyer would say, "Judge, that's too harsh," or something like that. But uh, I, I felt. Especially after a trial, I knew everything about everybody that was involved. That, I, that what I was doing was the right thing to do. Really trying to uh, achieve justice as much as you can, uh, especially when someone's life has been taken. We only have uh, a minute. Um, did when a defense attorney ever said, "Judge, 
that was too harsh, did you ever reverse yourself? No, no. It was, that was it. So that was, the ruling was the ruling. No, the, the sentence was the sentence <laughs> right. I imposed. I'm not going back into that court. <laughs> oh, I made a mistake. <laughs> All right. All right. This is Richard Salmon. We are with the Honorable Judge Mullen. Michael Mullen, who has an incredible life story and, and, and great things to talk about, will be right back right after this. And if you need to catch any of our prior shows, uh, go to the Solomon Channel, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, thesolomonchannel.com, and you'll find all of the links to all of our uh, past radio shows. So keep it locked in. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Scott Schenlinger, and you're listening to Richard Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon. We are with the Honorable Michael Mullen, and I'm looking at a letter that was written in 2016, and this was written to the New York State Board of Parole in Albany uh, regarding a, a, a certain person who was sentenced. Uh, why don't we talk about this letter? This is a very fascinating letter. Okay, Sure. So t- let's talk about it. So, so what was so what what was the background that led to this letter being created and signed by you? Well, uh, sometime during um, early 2016, I was with uh, obviously I was counsel to Lama Bernarski, and uh, the receptionist buzzed me and said, uh, "Judge Holland is someone on the phone wants to speak to you. His name is so and so." So I didn't recognize the name, and uh, but I picked up. I said hello, and it turns out that he was someone I had sentenced for murder back in uh, 1990. I had given him a uh, uh, indeterminate sentence of 18 to life, um, but I had made clear in well, I'll get to that in a minute. But um, when I went back to um, to the receptionist and I said, so-and-so, uh, Kathy, uh, uh, I want to thank you for putting that call through. Uh, that was someone I sentenced for murder. And I, who oh, judge? <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out he, he wasn't complaining about anything. He was telling me that he had been denied parole four or five times. So his wife uh, was still married to him. She was living in uh, Suffolk County. So I said, well, I need the sentencing minutes. I need this and all that. And, and uh, about two weeks later, I received a whole package of, of these things, the, uh, uh, an appraisal done by a group of lawyers who uh, uh, go to the prisons and, and check and see how people are actually trying to improve themselves, you know. And uh, she sent me her, the sentencing minutes. And... Um, I didn't remember the case so much until I read the sentencing minutes because I did something that was a little unusual. He took a plea. He took a plea before me. But I allowed his, his mother to speak. He was about 18 or so this, uh, this defendant at the time that he, he committed this crime. I think he was high on uh, crack cocaine or something. But I gave him 18 to life because I, I put it in the minutes that I think you're salvageable. And I allowed his mother to speak because she had been coming to all the court appearances of, of the eight, ten months that I had the case. In other words, it was clear it wasn't going to trial, but we were trying to work out what would be a fair disposition. And in, uh, in her minutes, in the minutes of what she said, she said, Judge, he deserves to be punished, but I think he's changing now. I think he has potential. And I'm, I'm, he knows what he did is wrong, and that's... That's the point. Uh, and I'm praying for him. I'm praying for him. But so you usually, I don't normally allow the, a defendant's mother to testify. Okay, if a defendant's mother wants to say something on behalf of her son, I, I certainly would allow that time. But for some reason, and I couldn't remember exactly why, I let her. And then to see this happen. So I wrote uh, a letter to the, after looking at the record, the minutes, the, what what he did in uh, in prison for the eighteen years that he had been there it was fifteen years excellent record he it, it turned out he even had been assigned by the warden to help other uh, people who, who were incarcerated so he he was the perfect guy to perhaps give a second chance get a second chance and I so I wrote to the uh, parole board in. Uh, 
May of 2016. He appeared before the parole board again in August of 2017. And then in August of 2017, he was granted parole. Huh? And Did you hear from him subsequently? I certainly did. He, he was living, his wife was living in uh, Mastic. When he got home, they called me. We went to lunch. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't remember him facially or any other way. Must have been a lot of changes over all that time. Yeah. yeah. And she keeps in touch with me. You know, how is he doing on, on parole? Because they're very strict on parole. But um, apparently my, my instinct or gut reaction in this case was right. In other words, that he was salvageable. And it took him time. I mean, he didn't waste a minute in prison. And it was all documented. He had signed up for this. He had signed up for that. The, the parole officers were very pleased with him while it, he was being visited there and everything else. And uh, so that, that's one case that, that certainly stands out so, because of the result that finally came about. So it kind of begs the question, if he was such a model prisoner, why was he denied parole so many subsequent times? I don't know. It was a, it was a murder. Is that basically because... Now, do the victims have anything to say to the parole board? I don't know uh, if they did in this case. Right. Are, are, no, Normally, you, the parole board will, ch will check with the victims. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, that was kind of my question, which is, do victims or victims' families have the right to be heard when it's a parole matter absolutely. comes up. Yes. Absolutely. And I believe the, the parole board members have a, an obligation to contact the, the victim's family to make, let them know that he's up for parole again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you have another letter there. So let's talk about that. Cause in this particular radio program, we're just flying through time. It's like you're 20 years on the bench. Well, uh, I sat in, as you mentioned, the major crime part. And one of the Unfortunately, one of the most common situations as far as crime is concerned in Suffolk County is driving while intoxicated. And sometimes there's just horrible results. If innocent people are killed because someone has had too much to drink and everything else. I um, sentenced a, a particular young lady uh, to, we, we had a program in, uh, um, Suffolk County uh, was called Stop Dewey. There, there was a facility in, in uh, Hupog, or Yapank where instead of being behind bars all the time, they would go to AA meetings and things like that. And uh, I sentenced a young lady, a very bright young lady, uh, uh, very sensitive to that program. And uh, in... Um, I got a beautiful letter from her in 2007 and essentially thanking me for being patient with her. I'll, I just want to read an ex excerpt. Uh, you showed me compassion in the use of tough love, quote, unquote. I needed someone to show me how I was living my life it was terrible, wasteful, dangerous to sobriety, to society, and it was degrading. At the same time, I needed someone who did not put me away simply to, quote, do my time. You sent me to the trailers in Yapank in October of 2002. Then she goes on and said, I've turned my life around. I'm, I'm an AA because that saved my life. I have a family now. My children know I'm in AA. They know my your, their father's in AA. But such a wonderful human being, uh, who was having trouble at a certain part of her life, recognized it, and through the facilities here in Suffolk County that we have, with that help, she was able to, with her discipline, finally turn her life around. Productive member of society, and that's one of the cases. You say, boy, that was worthwhile. What? what in that particular case, I'm so pleased because she's a, young, a, a wonderful young lady, very talented, but she had that problem for a certain part of her life. And by giving her the chance 
not throwing away the key, in other words, and giving her the chance to go to that program, it turned her life around, and she's a wonderful person to this day. What's interesting is in the media, we don't really see much about rehabilitation. We always see the crime. We always see the trial, whether it's in fictionalized versions or court TV or, you know, things like, you know, the TV shows. But after, it's almost like they need to do a series called After the Sentence. (laughs) No, no, because I was taught at an early age that there are three basic reasons for sentencing. One is deterrence. One is reparation. The third is rehabilitation. Those are the three purposes of sentencing. So a judge, by reason of his or her call to the bench, has to be aware of that. Do you, did you come across much in terms of reparations in what you had to deal with in, in your particular part? Because when, when people are murdered, there's well, not much. Well, the, the reparation much, yeah. was um, society well, re- has to be made whole. That's well, what it is. Well, I'm, I'm thinking like, more like, well, it, would restitution be part of reparations? Well, sometimes it is, but uh, that wasn't really too much of a factor in the major crime part in Suffolk County for the 20 years I was there. In the 20 years, it's almost like a window. Yeah. Did you see certain crimes go up? Did you see certain crimes go down? Did you, in, in some ways, was your part a barometer of society, economics, uh, drug use, alcohol use, abuse, gambling, things like that? Well, we didn't, I didn't see too many gambling cases. Uh, well, no, but I mean, gambling we, leads to crime sometimes. If yeah. you're in debt, and then you have to steal, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, in fact, that murder case that I uh, that had to do with the, uh, the death, death penalty, penalty. Yeah. he uh, had been gambling a lot because of his uh, drug drug use and, and everything else. The the defendant in that case, but um, um, Dewey's were, were a constant thing, and perhaps they went up a little, but. Then more monies were put into the rehabilitation section, you know, that, that uh, Stop DW program that Suffolk started, probably other counties did it too, because society seems to realize that someone who has a drinking problem can be saved. Hopefully they can be saved before they kill someone, <laughs> you know. So uh, th- that excerpt from the letter that I wrote was ex- Exhibit A of, yes, People can be safe, but it takes prayer, it takes support from families, a lot of support. and it takes discipline uh, for that person to t- turn their life around. Um, unfortunately, rehabilitation is not something that is number one in everybody's mind, but you have to at least give ser- lip service to it because sometimes you'll have somebody who will change. Just all they need is that ch- that opportunity. If 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 you're in prison and and you're basically in for the whole run till you're done, how do you how do you as a prisoner try to improve yourself if there's really no light at the end of the tunnel? I don't know the answer to that. I've never been put in that position. An interesting thing, though, while I was sitting for, the, uh, for those twenty years, the. Um, court system put into operation uh, kind of a, a, a rule for judges sitting in criminal parts. They had to, every year or two, visit facilities where they had sentenced people. Well, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. And I found it really not only interesting, but if I was going to leave, the, for instance, to Coxsackie, so upstate New York, uh, or to Bedford Hills, because that's uh, where women... Uh, inmates are sent generally. But uh, I would call the uh, superintendent and say, listen, uh, this is Judge Mullen. Is there anybody there? Uh, would you check your files and records if anyone from Suffolk County is there uh, who I might have sentenced? And, they, and I'd get a call back and and say, because uh, some people say, well, Judge, do you really want to see that? <laughs> and uh, I, could, I can remember actually visiting, or not, not because I wanted to, but just to check in to see I, well, first of all, I would ask the superintendent, uh, is this person making any progress there? And they, they'll tell me in a second. But that, that uh, requirement that the administrative judge put in, namely, I thought was very valid. If you're sitting in a criminal part, you have to go every year or two, whatever the rule uh, provided for, and visit these facilities. 
with all the wisdom that you acquired now, do you either teach law school or judges or or, or prosecutors or defense attorneys and CLE or other well, uh, formats? I did a lot of that while I was uh, on the bench. And when I left the bench, uh, I taught at Toro Law School for about two years. But uh, What did you teach? Uh, well, it was called pretrial litigation. Okay. <laughs> In other words, it wasn't a criminal uh, aspect to it. Uh, it was... Uh, so, things about EBTs yeah. and things like that, yeah. But uh, I, I uh, then went on. I stopped there for about two years. I enjoyed enjoyed it, but uh, uh, of course, while I was on the bench, I, I was asked several times by the people who put the CLE programs in if I would come and speak, and I did. I spoke to the New York State judges one year on jury selection or something like that, you know. And I always enjoyed that. Always enjoyed that. What what is the thing that you wish the lay public knew about the judicial system that they don't really see on television? Like you know, the, you know, there's a famous TV show about a courtroom psychologist. They go, yeah. oh, this this juror is acceptable, and I always tell people I'm watching that that's not how it works. It's not even close to how it works. Is, is there anything that? Or, or, or sometimes when I watch a TV show and they go, objection, sustain, I go, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> I feel like John McEnroe. You can't be serious. Do you, do you have either those moments um, where you wish you could dispel certain myths or preconceived notions um, about what the system is like, what the yeah. courts is well, like, see, what judges do? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, that question. And I have to kind of hedge it a little because uh, – I wasn't elected by the people. I was appointed by the governor. And uh, so I didn't come up through the political system. Which is probably better. <laughs> well, there are, uh, I certainly <laughs> and, uh And that, that um, topic comes up very, very, very often because um, sometimes um, people who come up uh, and are on the bench maybe shouldn't be there. You know, I felt that I was, of course, I'm not being egotistical about it, but, but I had been on uh, on law review. I, I had been, before I went on the bench, I was with a judge in the appellate division as his law clerk for six years. Uh, I had my own private practice in Huntington. So I thought I had a well-rounded uh, uh, background. And it's, but it's, and it's interesting. I w- had not been an assistant district attorney, and I had not worked for legal aid. So when I went on the bench, and see, I, I picked a law clerk who uh, was a young assistant DA. I interviewed uh, people down in my old law office in Huntington, and I selected her. And as the world turns, she was elected to the Supreme Court in the last election. Oh, wow. Her name is Marion Teneri. But my point is... Uh, after about a two weeks on the bench, uh, she came in one day and said, Judge, you know, the, the lawyers can't figure you out. <laughs> they can't figure no. you out. You weren't in legal aid, so the defense are happy, and you weren't a prosecutor, so the prosecutors would be happy. So I said, well, I am who I am. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I never felt that because I wasn't in either of those positions that I was at a, a disadvantage. Uh, I, I went in as a human being, with experience, uh, with doing with uh, dealing with people, uh, I had a very understanding wife, and raising who helped me. I helped her raise six children, so you have to balance things with common sense, with life experience, with the law, knowledge of the law, with sensitivity to people. All those factors go into making a good jurist. All right. And with and with that, we're out of time. I don't believe it. it. it was, well, we're going to continue this on YouTube. So for those on radio, we'll see you next week. And for those, check on our site for more info.